1: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/slash-techsf.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter, as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1 p.m.
0: And as that guilty verdict for the murder of George Floyd was read in the Minneapolis courtroom and broadcast to the country, former police officer Derek Chauvin showed no reaction to his conviction. But outside the heavily fortified and guarded courthouse... <laughs> The crowd erupted in cheers at the announcement of guilt on all three charges. And there was uniform praise for the verdict from people in all walks of life. From George Floyd's brother, Philonis. Justice for George means freedom for all. To the president of the United States.
3: As we saw in this trial from the fellow police officers who testified, most men and women who wear the badge serve their communities honorably. But those few who fail to meet that standard must be held accountable, and they were today.
0: Chauvin is facing up to 40 years in prison, and the Minneapolis Police Department is facing a sweeping federal investigation. Joining me is David Harris, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and author of A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. David, is it an inflection point that at this trial, a number of police officers, including the chief of police, testified against Chauvin, one of their own? Is this the crumbling of the so-called blue wall? It was very significant.
3: Because usually, as you say, this idea of the blue wall of silence is that police officers never turn on and certainly don't testify against their own in these kinds of cases, that they always back each other up no matter what. And here you had three police officers from the Minneapolis Police Department, two current high-ranking officers, including the chief himself, testifying against Chauvin. Now, this is very significant on two levels. Number one is on the level of the case itself, it served to cut off the defense argument that somehow Chauvin was acting within his training, that his actions were within policy and so forth. And all three of the officers said, oh, no, definitely not. And therefore, that crippled the argument that the defense did make. But the larger question is whether this shows that that blue wall will crumble more generally. I think the jury has to be out on that at this point. Certainly seeing this right out in front of the whole country gives an indication of how important it is for police officials to say out and direct, no, this was wrong. But whether this becomes some kind of a trend that we see in a lot of other cases, I think still remains to be seen. There is still a very strong current of thinking, well, this Chauvin, he was just one bad guy in an otherwise good department in an otherwise good profession.
0: Chauvin is facing a maximum of 40 years in prison and a minimum of 12 and a half. Floyd's family and activists are calling for the maximum sentence. How likely is that?
3: Well, in any sentencing, you look at both the crime and the convicted defendant. Chauvin's lawyers will no doubt argue that he's been a policeman with a relatively good record for 19 years. And, you know, there can be some argument about whether that's true of his record, but they'll argue that he should get the minimum sentence because this is something that nobody could have foreseen. He's not a repeat offender. I don't think that's realistic because the crime itself showed uh, what are called in Minnesota aggravating circumstances. And that would be especially just the outright cruelty of what happened out there in public. This was a situation where a man did not need to die. This was not a case in which the police officer could make, and we didn't hear it, any argument, you know, he was in fear for his life, like we often hear in such cases. You often wonder, looking at that video, is this guy waiting in line for a sandwich at Subway? Is he trying to make a point to these people who are yelling at him that he can do whatever he wants? So I'd expect the sentence to be above the minimum. The system and the sentencing will respond to the circumstances of the crime and the defendant. You can make an argument that the crime was so cruel and outrageous, that it deserves the maximum sentence. But I think there's going to be debate about that. I don't expect the judge to give the minimum, but I would be surprised if he gave the absolute maximum that was out there.
0: Chauvin's lawyer has been making a record for his appellate case throughout the trial. What will some of the appellate issues be?
3: There will be appeals about jury issues. We saw multiple times that Chauvin's lawyer asked that the case be moved out of Hennepin County. Multiple requests for mistrials concerning uh, information that was out in the public sphere, particularly the announcement during jury selection that the uh, family of Mr. Floyd was going to receive a very large settlement. And we saw Judge Cahill actually take a couple of the jurors who had already been selected off the jury panel when they told him they weren't sure that they could stay on the jury and be fair. There are also multiple issues about the admission of certain pieces of evidence that will be contested by the defendant on appeal. Once you're convicted, it becomes hard to overturn a conviction. At every stage of the system, the higher up you go and the farther along you go, once you're convicted, the harder it is to overturn a verdict.
0: The three other officers at the scene will be tried in August. Does the conviction in this case have any impact on that trial?
3: Not directly. It doesn't, say, foreclose the possibility that they could be acquitted. They are charged with aiding and abetting Derek Chauvin, which in legal theory is the same as being the main actor. But juries always have a sense of proportion, in my experience, they will know, for instance, that one officer was standing up on the sidewalk blocking people from what they fear might have been interference. Though he is an aider and a better, allegedly, under the legal theory of the case and therefore bears the same responsibility of as the person who did the actual act, juries want a sense of proportional justice. And if they think the system is reacting too harshly to a person with a role that is not the same, the jury may be more reluctant to convict for the same charges. And prosecutors know this. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some movement toward a plea agreement with these three defendants.
0: Coming up next, I'll continue this conversation with Professor David Harris of the University of Pittsburgh Law School, and we'll talk about the new Justice Department investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. Dante Wright life mattered Dante Wright life mattered, Wright, life mattered. the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is over but still to come is the trial of another former police officer for the killing of Dante Wright a 20 year old black man shot during a traffic stop on April 11th in suburban Minneapolis. And that city's police department will now be the subject of a sweeping investigation by the Justice Department. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland.
3: The investigation I am announcing today will assess whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of using excessive force, including during protests.
0: I've been talking to David Harris, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School. How significant is this pattern and practice investigation?
3: I think it's very important. Uh, Here's why. A case like Chauvin's case or the cases of the other three officers, those are criminal actions uh, against individual people for particular acts that they did. In a case like that, you're looking at individual facts to pursue individualized justice. Even though we are all looking at it as a kind of referendum on police conduct, they are fundamentally individual cases about individual actions on a particular day. What the Justice Department has the authority to do is under a federal statute called the Pattern of Practice Statute to go to a local police department And to say, we will now be investigating you uh, for allegations that your department, not Derek Chauvin, not one of the other three officers, but your department is engaged in a pattern of violating your citizen's constitutional rights. Now, a number of important things are packed in there. Number one, the, the national government in this country does not have authority to regulate local policing. Our policing in this country is hyper-localized. The best that they have is the authority to see that the Constitution is obeyed, and that's what this statute is based on. So they can go in and look for violations of constitutional rights. The statute limits them to looking for patterns, to looking for regular practices of violations. In other words, even a terrible incident like the death of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin, wouldn't be enough under this statute. It can't be one incident, even one very bad one. It must be a pattern of this that goes on all the time. Under that statute, the Justice Department can come in, do an investigation to look for those patterns in anything that might impact constitutional rights. So that can be use of force. It can be uh, search and seizures of other kinds, like stop and frisk, like uh, traffic stops, it can be any number of things that might violate people's constitutional rights. And if it finds those patterns, it then goes to the city and the police department and says, here's what we found. We think you're violating your citizens' constitutional rights and we propose that you make the following changes. And if there is agreement, that agreement is then put into something, a document called a consent decree, which is signed off on by a federal judge. Now, the real importance of this is that instead of addressing one incident, it addresses the full scope of police actions that are found to be in violation of the Constitution in that department. In other words, it's targeted at the system, at the institutional level, right? So if they find a pattern of use of force violations, they will uh, they will uh, uh, say, we want you to retrain all your officers. We want this to be the new standard within your police department. It will have the following details, and you will monitor it in these ways. So these are systemic-level changes, and it's the best and really only tool out there that the federal government has for making those kind of changes. So it is entirely appropriate to follow the Chauvin trial with this kind of investigation to see, is this the problem of one person? As some people are saying, well, he was a bad apple. Or is this a department-wide problem?
0: In the last few years, there have been as many as seven fatal shootings by police in the Minneapolis area. So is it likely the feds will find a pattern in practice?
3: And I suspect they're gonna find that department-wide pattern because data that was public, even at the time of George Floyd's death, showed that the Minneapolis police used force way disproportionately against people of color and all kinds of force, not just deadly force, but you know, using tasers, using fists or pepper spray or clubs or whatever. So this is the right thing for them to do, to look into this. And it is a signal that the Justice Department is going to pick up this tool after letting it go and abandoning it entirely under the Trump administration and under Attorney General Sessions.
0: Have consent decrees changed police practices in past cases?
3: Yes, they worked. Not all of them worked. And not all of them had staying power, but I do think it's fair to say that they were the best tool we had, and often a very effective tool to go in and address some of the worst police departments and get others back on track. You know, they had to go into the New Orleans Police Department not once, but twice. Here in Pittsburgh, where I am based, it was the very first consent decree back in 1997 to 2002. And it transformed this police department and it was a better department for some years. But, you know, as in all police departments, city administrations change, a new mayor comes in, a couple of police chiefs down the line. The commitment is not there. And a lot of the things that were put into place kind of atrophied didn't stick. So it doesn't always work and fully transform departments, but there are many places where it has. I mean, a good example is Cincinnati, which had a terrible set of riots after uh, the killing of Timothy Thomas back in 2001. And that's still a different department. Remember that there are knock-on effects, too. So when the Justice Department comes into a police department in, say, Baltimore, Chicago, or New Orleans, or whatever, you've got police departments all over that same region and all over the country saying, you know what, I don't really want the 800 pound gorilla in my office telling me they're going to take all my files. What do I have to do to get better? How can I manage up to a better standard so I don't have that? Everybody knows the Department of Justice can't investigate all police departments. I think during the entire Obama administration, they did 25 of these. And, you know, we have 18,000 police departments in this country. So you're only going to get a small fraction, and hopefully they're the ones that really need it.
0: That's Professor David Harris of the University of Pittsburgh Law School. Coming up, will the
1: Supreme Court curb green card applications? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: In oral arguments this week, the Supreme Court suggested it would block green card applications of thousands of immigrants who entered the country illegally but then secured temporary legal status because their home nations are in crisis, like the Salvadoran couple in the case. Federal law requires green card applicants to have been, quote, inspected and admitted into the country. And some of the justices appeared doubtful about whether the plaintiffs could be considered admitted. Here are Justices Clarence Thomas and Elena Kagan.
1: In the case of uh, petitioners, uh, how does that work? Because they clearly were not admitted at the borders. So is that a fiction? Uh, Is it metaphysical? What is it?
0: I mean, the the section says the admission to the United States of any alien is a non-immigrant. But why does that suggest that admission is something that all non-immigrants get. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh said the plaintiffs had an uphill climb.
2: We need to be careful about uh, tinkering with the immigration statutes as written, particularly when Congress has some such a primary role here.
0: Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, explain what temporary protected status is.
2: So that's actually a statute that Congress passed that says that when there is a natural disaster or something like the COVID-19 pandemic or hurricanes or political war, etc., that the United States and the president in this case, in particular, has the ability to say, I am going to protect people here in America from those countries from deportation and give them something called temporary protected status that allows them to remain here legally for 18-month increments during the, quote-unquote, duration of the crisis. And then when that, quote-unquote, crisis is over, then theoretically these individuals are supposed to then return back to their country.
0: So the Salvadoran couple came here in the 1990s. When did they acquire temporary protected status?
2: the status that they accrued actually did occur in the 90s due to natural disasters and hurricanes that occurred in El Salvador. The point is that that status was extended. This is one of the criticisms that people give about temporary protected status is once it's extended, it never goes away because America feels badly about deporting people that had legal status. So these were individuals that had, for 18-month increments at a time, been getting their status remaining in the United States, but were concerned, like many people were, that when President Trump came into office, his goal was to end this temporary protected status and not let anyone remain on it anymore. And so many people started to try to figure out, are there ways I can get a green card in order to remain here? in the United States, and that is the crux of what the Supreme Court was debating.
0: The issue for the justices, though, was that they came here illegally.
2: Correct. They came here illegally. And so what happens is, in order to get temporary protected status, it doesn't matter whether you came here legally or illegally. It just matters that you're in the United States on the day that the status is created. So let's say there's a hurricane on March 1st, and on March 8th, the president says, we're gonna say that everybody who was here on March 1st, the day of the hurricane, gets temporary protective status, then anybody here can apply, whether they were here illegally or legally, and more importantly, whether they came illegally or legally. The question for them was whether those individuals who had entered here illegally could be treated as being admitted here now that they had temporary protective status, such that they're permitted now to apply for green cards, because the condition of a green card is that you had to have been admitted into the United States.
0: What were the justices' main concerns during oral arguments?
2: There were three main concerns. One, there was there was well, there was a prudential concern, a textual concern, and then sort of the main concern in the case. But so I'll start first with the prudential concerns, because that's the easiest to understand. The first was, look, Congress decided this thing as a temporary relief. And so if Congress decided this thing as a temporary relief, then Congress didn't want this thing to be used by people to stay here permanently. So there's no way this could have been their intent to give people a way to be able to sneakily earn lawful permanent residence. And so you heard Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Coney Barrett talk about this. Justice Kavanaugh was also concerned, hey, look, Congress is currently debating, giving green cards to people here with temporary protective status. So just let that debate happen. And when they can win it, they win it, and they get the green card. And if not, why should the Supreme Court be involved in this? The second was there was this very arcane, and I thought a bit, confusing because I think they they were trying to be too cute by half all of the justices, asking whether a non-immigrant, which is someone who's coming here temporarily, and so non-immigrants are student visas, visitor visas, temporary work visas, religious worker visas, all of these things are called non-immigrant visas. Whether there's any kind of non-immigrant who hasn't been admitted into the United States, because the the key up to this case is that the, the statute says that if you have temporary protected status, you're being, you're being treated as a non-immigrant. And so they were getting to this debate, is there any kind of, of non-immigrant who hasn't been admitted to the United States? And the actual answer to that question is no. And for some reason, that did not come out in the oral argument yesterday. You can't, the whole point, even if it's not said in the code that in order to be a non-immigrant, you have to be admitted into the United States, It's like if you don't say in the code in order to be alive, you have to be breathing. It's just an obvious point. Because what happens is the way you get non-immigrant status in America is you enter a port of entry, you present that visa and a CBP person stamps you and that's your admission. And that's every non-immigrant in America. There's nobody who's not like that. And so because of that, the, the court got off on this tangent of, well, maybe not every non-immigrant is admitted, but they didn't come up with an example. They didn't ask for an example. Nobody provided an example because no example was available.
0: And the justices asked a lot of questions about what the word admitted means. Tell us about the third concern.
2: Then the third thing they were arguing about was, well, there's two requirements in order to get a green card. First, you have to be admitted. And second, you have to be in legal status when you apply. This is for employment-based green cards, which is what they were talking about in this case. And so they said, why doesn't this just mean the second thing, which is that you're currently in legal status, but it doesn't fix the first thing which is that you were admitted. And that's really the central question in the case. And there is where I think the government, if they have the stronger area of the argument, it would be there, which is that it was meant to cover just the issue of whether you're currently in lawful status, but it was not meant to fix the issue of whether you had been admitted here in the first place. And so it's only meant to give a green card to people who came here illegally it's not meant to give a green card to people who came here illegally. And so that's, I think, most likely where you're going to see the court go. But what's very fascinating about this case is the Biden administration's solicitor general did not want the court, and was very adamant about this, to say that this interpretation had been foreclosed, that you could get a green card while they were on TPS. They simply wanted to be a reasonable interpretation of the statute, because it's possible that they may issue a regulation later that does allow people with temporary protective status to get green cards, because you can choose between two reasonable interpretations, but if the Supreme Court says there's only one reasonable interpretation, and it's that you cannot get a green card, then no regulation will be possible.
0: Listen to what Chief Justice John Roberts told the Justice Department lawyer about the Biden administration not being more forceful in their arguments.
3: Mr. Houston, I was struck by the extent to which your brief um, undersold your position. Uh, Throughout it, you you said things like the text doesn't foreclose your position. Uh, The court was not required to accept the petitioner's reading.
0: Is that because of the difference in the way the Biden administration views this and the way the Trump administration viewed it?
2: Correct. That's the huge difference. It's the Trump administration wanted a decision that foreclosed permanently the ability for anybody who had entered here illegally to be able to get a green card using temporary protective status, And the Biden administration is instead, and I think this was because they didn't really have time, the case was already in the middle, and they didn't want to change their position They instead are trying to defer to this minimalist position, which is to say, this argument isn't wrong. We're not saying it's the only correct argument. We're just saying that the Trump administration's interpretation wasn't a bad interpretation. So you should say this interpretation is reasonable enough for now, and then you can always change it later if you want to. And so that's where the Biden administration retreated to.
0: So where do you think the court is going to come out on this?
2: I could see some sort of consensus being reached on the reasonableness of the interpretation that would then allow the Biden administration to come back and issue a regulation and change how it interprets this statute. That way, sort of the position that people on the conservative side think exists here can prevail in the litigation. But at least if you provide this consensus opinion a it's better for courts always to provide a consensus opinion but b it then provides the ability for the Biden administration to change how it interprets the statute and and actually permit green cards i think there will probably be a concurring opinion by uh justice thomas and justice alito and maybe justice gorsuch saying no 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 we don't agree with this chevron deference concept But we don't believe in that, and we think there's only one way to interpret this statute. But I could see a consensus judgment that just upholds the decision but doesn't foreclose the Biden administration from changing its interpretation of the statute. That would be my prediction.
0: Does this illustrate the problem the Biden administration has with immigration issues, where here it's at odds with Democratic lawmakers, there are nine Democratic members arguing against it, and progressives?
2: Yes, I mean, this was the exact perfect storm where perhaps if this whole issue had arisen during the Biden administration from beginning to end, you might have seen a different resolution all throughout. But because this case was part of the Trump administration and was carried over into the Biden administration after the Supreme Court had already granted certiorari, the Biden administration was in a very tough position because it didn't have the ability to do all of the changes that it needed to do in order to change its position in this case. It didn't want to take a lawless position in this case because there had already been binding authorities from this body called the Board of Immigration Appeals that had bound the administration to this case. So what they just are trying to do for now is minimize the damage by saying, look, all of these binding decisions that we have now, let's just say they're reasonable, but give us the opportunity to undo all of these decisions using the mechanisms that are available under administrative law, and I could foresee in a year or two this process being concluded to permit people who enter here illegally to be able to obtain green cards.
0: So far at the Supreme Court, the Biden administration on immigration issues has been mostly rescinding Trump policies that the justices had been planning to consider. For example, the the court's dismissed cases over Trump's border wall, his remain in Mexico policy for asylum keepers, and his tough test for screening out green card applicants who might become dependent on government benefits. Is this the first immigration case that's been argued by the administration?
2: Yes, and the reason this one had to move forward and the other ones didn't have to move forward was because there was actual – administrative law decisions that had already binded the government, and you couldn't overturn those. You either had to do something which I think the Biden administration was uncomfortable doing, which was not defending decisions that the government made through the regular order of the government decisions, or they're doing what they're doing here, which is this minimalist defense of the decision. For the border wall, they could just simply say, we're gonna move this out by not building any more border wall. Or for the public charge, they could simply say, we're gonna move this out by accepting an injunction from the lower courts. But the problem with this Sanchez case is it was a challenge to an administrative decision, and so there's no way to move out an administrative decision. Or there is, but it was gonna take much longer. It would have required the attorney general to issue a new case, a new briefing process, Etc. and none of that was on the table where the attorney general has just recently been confirmed. There was not an ability to get to this case in
0: time. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
3: I'm Alex Rodriguez,
2: and I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.